It is a great privilege for me to be back here at College Church, not least with um, a long-standing friend like Josh Moody, uh, now serving here as well. We're going to begin this morning by reading Psalm 40. You may want to follow in your Bible, but the text is also printed in the bulletin. I'm going to read the entire chapter, Psalm 40. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, Aha! Aha! be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, The Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. This is the word of the Lord. If you live long enough you will suffer. The only way you will avoid suffering is if you do not live long enough. If you live long enough, you will be bereaved. The only way you avoid being bereaved is if you bereave someone else. If you live long enough, you will get cancer or heart failure or Alzheimer's, or arthritis, 
or all four. This is a sin-cursed world. And besides those sorts of things, there will be broken relationships, and some will lose their jobs, and some will lose their emotional stability, some will lose their children. The psalm in front of us is one of several psalms that depict a believer crying out to God. The series starts in Psalm 37, this business of waiting for God to answer, pursuing Him, waiting for God to answer. But by the time you get to Psalm 40, our psalm, God has answered. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. That brings us then to the first of the two divisions of the psalm. We'll spend most of our time in the first. Verses 1 to 10, David offers up joyful praise to the God who helps. It's useful to break it down in four developing sections. First, David's personal testimony. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. Probably the word patiently is too weak. I waited perseveringly for the Lord. It was not some sort of static waiting for God to show up. I resolved to wait for God. I sought His face. I I waited and waited, and the Lord answered me. He came and helped. What was the problem that needed resolving? Well, it's described in metaphorical terms in verse 2. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. The picture is of some sort of miry bog that conjures up horror and floundering helplessness, like being stuck in quicksand and every movement you take simply embeds you more deeply. There's no way out and you cannot save yourself. What it actually is, apart from the metaphor, we cannot possibly know. Sickness? Sin? Political setback since David was king? Peril? Family troubles of which David had more than his share? We simply do not know. And it may be a good thing that we don't know. If we knew exactly which peril or which disaster David was referring to, then we might think the only appropriate way to apply this psalm to us would be when we suffer exactly the same disaster. One recalls what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. There he says that uh, he suffers from a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to torment him. He sought the Lord's face earnestly three times to take it away. But in that case, God didn't take it away. He says again and again, my grace is sufficient for you. And we don't know what that thorn in the flesh is either. We can make some intelligent guesses, but we cannot possibly be certain. And once again, that's probably a good thing. For when we face various thorns in the flesh, we too learn to discover as believers that God's grace comes to us. My grace is sufficient for you, God says, to us too. In this case, of course, God does not simply add grace. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Sometimes God responds to the prayers of His people by taking us out of the mess. 
Sometimes he responds to his people by adding more grace. But what is remarkable here, I suspect, is that David does not focus all of his attention on his own release as if he were at the center of the universe. His words quickly give praise to God and flow outward to others. Yes, God set my feet on a rock. He he gave me a firm place to stand. But he adds, verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Then Paul, uh, David moves from personal testimony to public principle. It is almost as if David wants to extract a general public principle from his own experience of grace. Hence verses 4 and 5. He moves from his personal testimony in the first person, verses 1 to 3, to the second person, verses 4, 5, and 6. In fact, to, to, the, to the third person, as he generalizes, he links the two sections with the word trust. Have you noticed the end of verse 3? Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. Then generically, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside, to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us, None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Of course, one of the common experiences of pain, suffering, brokenness, is that your horizons shrink. It's very difficult for you to see beyond your immediate suffering. You're there trying to recover from the nausea of another round of chemo or you're bereaved, and you simply cannot see beyond the horizons of your own grief. It's very difficult to pray for yourself, let alone others. Everything is focused narrowly down, inward. But correspondingly, once you find relief, once you come out the other side, once God has added more grace or he's taken you and planted your feet in a stable place, then your horizons open up again. And it's it's not just that you, you see how the Lord's hand was even in this miserable passage of events, but you can see where the Lord's goodness has sheltered you and covered you in so many things. You, you can see that you have had so many years of health, and you have loved ones who, who do cherish you, and you're nurtured in a good church, and, and you have tasted that the Lord is good. You know what salvation is. You have enjoyed the gift of the Holy Spirit, the down payment of the promised inheritance, and you have promise of resurrection life, and, and a new home, and a new heaven, and a new earth. And, and moreover, you can look at the sunsets and the sunrises and see the hand of God in in the flutter of a hummingbird. All of these things are, are obvious to you once you've got through the other side. That sounds like David here. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. Now his horizons are not shrunk. In fact, he sees God's sovereignty in these matters the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. One remembers another psalm, Psalm 139. There, David, likewise the author of that psalm, writes, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. 
I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Now, it's important in this quotation to link together verse 16 of Psalm 139 with verse 17. Verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. He confesses God's sovereignty. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. That is, the thoughts that you had of me even before I experienced these things. This is not a general affirmation of God's omniscience. You have a lot of thoughts, God. I'm impressed. It's more focused. That is, before any of my days came to pass, they were ordained in your book. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. So also here in Psalm 40, we read, Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. Now, you must not think of this as some sort of mechanistic, robotic determinism. It's more complicated than that. Joseph understood it. He could look back on the event of being sold into slavery by his own brothers. But as he looked back at it, the way things worked out, he could say to God, you intended these things for good, even as they intended them for evil. You begin to see God's sovereign hand working in the most miserable events in life. So also David, coming out the backside of this miserable quicksand, can still see God's hand in it and utter praise to God. So David moves from personal testimony to public principle. Then he turns to personal self-dedication. What is the only adequate response to this God? Offer another sheep in sacrifice? Sacrifice a bull, perhaps? Or if you're a little poor, offer a couple of pigeons? No, the only adequate response to the God of grace is to offer ourselves to God. Hence, verse 6 to 8 Sacrifice and offering you did not require. But my ears you have opened. We'll come to that clause in a moment. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is written on my heart. In other words, David understands that getting the ritual right is never quite enough. He would certainly know this by simply thinking about the experience of his immediate predecessor, King Saul, who was desperately concerned to make sure that the sacrifices were offered, and in his desperation, in fact, he defied God himself. David knows that he must offer himself up. It's the only adequate response. It's the only adequate response to the cross, too, to offer ourselves up to God. But still, we must pause for a moment at this difficult line in verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. 
If I were trying to translate that directly, the Hebrew has, but my ears you have pierced. Or the same verb could be rendered, my ears you have dug. What does that mean? My ears you have pierced. It's not talking about a, a jewelry session. Some have suggested it refers to the ear-piercing ceremony described in Exodus 21. In the ancient world, some people became slaves because of war, skirmishes, raids. But some people became slaves because there were no bankruptcy protection laws. There was no chapter 11 or chapter 13. So if you borrowed some money in order to start a business and then the economy went belly up, You had no choice but to sell yourself into slavery. That was the law. In Israel, it was supposed to be a little better. That is to say, you sold yourself into a kind of indentured servitude. It was not supposed to last for more than seven years. At the end of seven years, you were supposed to be set free. But suppose, suppose you had a master as an indentured servant where he provided you with adequate housing and food and perhaps some money and you were secure in your life and family. The work was useful. Now you come to the end of the seven years. Nominally, you're free, but you look around and the economy is really bad still and unemployment is running at 30% and you think, I'm better off here, quite frankly. Then there was a ceremony, an ear-piercing ceremony that indicated that this indentured servant wanted to be a slave of this household for the rest of his days. His earlobe was pressed against the door of the master's house, and the master took a sharp awl and pierced the ear into the door of the house to indicate from now on this man belongs here. Now, if that were the symbolism that is referred to here, my ears you have pierced, then it is a way of saying... You have captured me. I I want to be your slave forever. You have captured me. And it makes a certain kind of sense. The trouble is that whenever that ceremony is described in the ancient world, it is always an ear that is pierced. Whereas this text says, my ears you have pierced, in the plural. And so some have thought, well, probably it's better to take the verb the other way that it should be understood. My ears you have dug. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you say you don't know what it means, it's perhaps because you never met my mother. My mother was a cockney, and she brought with her all kinds of expressions from East London, the origins of which we know not of. (laughs) But one of the things she liked to say to us when we were kids was, Oh, open up your ears, or dig out your ears. Don, dig out your ears. Now, this was not practical, concrete advice. It was a metaphor. It was saying, Don, listen up. You're not not paying attention. You're not doing what I'm told. It's as if your ears are plugged. So dig out your ears and listen, pay attention. And if that's what it means, you can understand why the NIV here and some other translations render this a little paraphrastically. My ears you have opened. In other words, it indicates that David, as the servant of God, has had his ears so attuned to the will and mind of God, that he's obedient. It's not just that you want sacrifice, another sheep. You want an obedient heart and mind. One of the interesting things is that in one of the servant songs of Isaiah, the servant songs that 
predict the coming of Jesus. The suffering servant predicted by Isaiah 700 years before the coming of Jesus also has his ears opened. It's a different verb but the same idea. We read in Isaiah chapter 50 verse 4, the suffering, the suffering servant speaking, the sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. In other words, the reason why the suffering servant endures all this suffering is precisely because God has so opened his ears, so given him a heart of obedient attentiveness to the mind and will of God that he does God's will, which is, of course, exactly what takes place in Gethsemane, is it not? If it be possible, take this cup from me. But if not... Not my will, but yours be done. The most fundamental reason why Jesus goes to the cross and endures the ignominy and shame is not because he loves us, though he does. The most fundamental reason is because he does his Father's will. His ears are opened. They're dug out. And he is perfectly attentive to the will of his Father. Now further, there's another step that we really must take with this line. This was written in Hebrew. But before you get to the time of Jesus, the common language in the Mediterranean world was Greek. So people started translating the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And when the Greek translators rendered this line into the Greek language, they rendered it, but a body you prepared for me. And you think, how on earth do you get from my ears you have opened to a body you prepared for me? It's not just a fussy question for scholars because this is actually quoted in the, in the New Testament as we'll see in a moment. And it's quoted from the Greek. So in the New Testament when this line shows up it actually says, but a body you prepared for me. Now there are many different explanations that are given. I won't attempt to wander through them. I'll tell you the one that strikes me as most plausible. You see, when something is said in one language, it, it, it sometimes has to be said in a different way in another language. I was brought up in English and French. In French Canada, I was brought up with both languages. The English side of me might clear my throat and say, <clears throat> I've got a frog in my throat. But the French side of me would never say that. The French side would say, I've got the cat in the throat. And if you think it's a bit strange for French Canadians to have cats in their Throats, let me assure you, they think it's strange for you to have frogs in yours. <laughs> now, supposing you're translating a French text which says, John has a cat in the throat. How will you translate that into English? Well, to preserve the fluidity of the idiom, you will probably render it, John has a frog in his throat. But supposing the word cat has some deep theological significance in the French text... Then you've got a choice. You preserve the theological significance but make it sound corny as anything in English. Or you preserve the English idiom but then you lose the connection in French. You see, translators are facing those sorts of choices all the time. And I suspect here 
There was a Hebrew-Greek translator who looked at this text and said, my ears you have dug. Oh boy, none of my friends is going to understand that one. It, it, it means, of course, that, that, that David has been made so obedient, he offers himself up to God. He, he's not offering a sacrifice, an animal. He, he's not offering a sheep. or He's offering himself. His, his whole being, his whole body is being offered up to God. So he renders it somewhat paraphrastically, but a body you have prepared for me. Then it becomes somewhat equivalent to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12. I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Not offering a sheep, but your body, your whole self. Do you see? Now we're ready to look at how this passage is quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 10. In the context of Hebrews chapter 10, the writer to the Hebrews is pointing out how the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. The sacrificial system was not an end in itself. It pointed to an ultimate sacrifice. These things, we're told, are only shadows of the good things to come. They point forward to the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we read Hebrews 10, verse 4, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 5, Therefore, when Christ, the ultimate son of David, the ultimate Davidic king, when Christ came into the world, he said, then he quotes these verses, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. You see, David so often stands as a kind of marker of great David's greater son who is still to come. He's pointing forward to the ultimate Davidic king. The ultimate Davidic king is Jesus himself. Oh, David wants to offer himself up in entire self-dedication to the living God, but we all know that he wasn't very consistent and successful in this regard. He, he offered himself up to God, but he could fall into horrible sin again and again and again. But he points forward to the ultimate Davidic king who really does offer himself up. He hears the word of God so perfectly, he offers himself up, his whole body, to God. And the animals' sacrifices are done away with. They're gone. They're finished. As Jesus offers himself up in such perfect obedience to the living God, in such self-denying, self-dedication to God that he goes to the cross and bears our sin in his own body on the tree. Indeed, the text goes on, with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. That is, I am going to be the sin offering. I'm, I'm going to offer myself up to you. It is written about me in the scroll, which suggests that this is a prophecy that ultimately has to be fulfilled in great David's greater son. I have come to do your will, my God. So here is personal self-dedication. The only adequate response to the grace we receive from God is personal self-dedication. And even if that is an entirely inadequate dedication as compared with that with Christ, that's where we must begin, always. External religion won't do. And then the section ends with public proclamation, verses 9 and 10. 
David writes, I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. Oh, there's a sense in which we're supposed to hide God's righteousness in our hearts. Of course. What he means by this statement here, however, is he doesn't hide it in such a way as to keep it secret, as to keep it private. He talks about it. Do you see? I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Sometimes because of temperament and culture and genes, people are really slow to express themselves with emotional power. You might come from an upper middle class family, maybe with British genes, where not venting is seen as a necessary virtue. So Charles loses his wife to a disease. He gets sacked from his job. His house burns down and his dog dies. And you say, Charles, how are you doing? And he says, things have sometimes been better. Two or three years later, he's happily remarried, has a wonderful job. The house has been rebuilt and he's got a new dog. How are you doing, Charles? Lots to be grateful for. And you want to shake the chap and say, do do, do you know, is there anything living and pulsing in there? Do you know? (laughs) Alternatively, people with another background, used to venting, lots of emotional display, maybe with an overtone of some charismatic enthusiasm laid on top, Oh, I had a cold this week. I had a cold. I was so sick. I was ill. I was ill. But I prayed to God and God healed me. Praise Jesus. And you want to say, do you want a box of Kleenex? (laughs) It just sounds so hyperbolic, over the top. But somewhere between those two extremes, isn't there a place for public acclamation of God? You see, that's what David recognizes here, too. Yes, there's the personal self-dedication, verses 6 to 8. But immediately he says, verses 9 and 10, I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. The great assembly needs to hear that. And as the great assembly hears David speaking along these lines, members of the great assembly learn likewise to speak similarly. How does a new generation coming along behind learn to give thanks to God unless it sees its elders giving thanks to God? You socialize a new generation into an attitude of gratitude in the context of the church precisely by articulating your thanks and praise to God yourself. If you fail to do so, then you fail to teach them what it is to offer praise and thanksgiving to God. Do you see? So Paul ends, uh, David ends this session, this section, therefore, with public proclamation. Let me tell you the story of Joe. That's not his real name, but it'll do. Joe was a six foot four, skinny as a beanpole missionary who went down to Bolivia quite a number of years ago. 
He learned Spanish fluently and became a really effective Bible teacher and church planter in Bolivia. While he was there, he met a woman missionary, and eventually the two of them got married. Rather late in life, they had a little girl. When the girl was about three and a half, the mission wanted Joe to come back to this country to do a Ph.D. He came to Trinity to do a Ph.D. in New Testament so that he would be better equipped to go back to Bolivia and train a whole new generation of Bolivian pastors to how to handle the Word of God a little better. So he arrived at Trinity and buckled into his studies. Six months into them, his wife was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. He withdrew from school, of course, and helped her through all of this time. Double mastectomy, chemo rounds. Looked as if it was in remission. After seven or eight months or so, he came back to Trinity, started working at his Ph.D. again. Six months later, he was diagnosed with advanced stomach cancer. Now, there are a lot of good cancer hospitals in the Chicago area, but he went to two or three of them, and they wouldn't touch him. The mission thought so highly of him, they, they sent him up to Mayo Clinic. The Mayo people said that um, they couldn't offer much hope, but they were prepared to take out 90% of his stomach and offer some drugs that were really used for fighting colon cancer. So he had 90% of his stomach removed, which meant that he could no longer eat a proper meal. He had to eat little and often, and the drugs took hold. And after some months, he was declared, so far as the tests went, cancer-free. Came back to Trinity, started working on his Ph.D., did another six months or so, and his wife's cancer came back. And she died. Now the churches were very supportive. Trinity was supportive. His family was supportive. The mission was supportive. There were tears, bereavement. But in due course, he came back to Trinity and finished his Ph.D. The last time I saw him, he was in our church saying goodbye because he and his nine-and-a-half-year-old daughter were returning to Bolivia. He spent all of a 35- or 40-minute sermon expressing gratitude to God for all the kindnesses shown him during these years of testing and trial. And I tell you, that was merely normal Christianity. Anything less is subnormal. He bore witness to God in the great assembly. He didn't look at things the way secularists did. He believed in the resurrection of the dead. He believed in God's sovereign goodness. He could say, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. This is normal, faithful Christianity. Then more quickly, the second part of the psalm from verse 11 to the end finds David offering 
renewed anticipation of the God who helps. You see, just because you've been bereaved does not mean you're exempt from cancer. Just because you've suffered cancer does not mean you will escape Alzheimer's. Just because you have had a serious illness does not necessarily mean that your kids will turn out wonderfully. This is a damned world under the curse. And things pile up. So that if you have suffered once and God has given you help or release, be assured that you sooner or later, if you live long enough, will need help again. And David understands that. Hence, verse 11, Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. And then he lists some of the domains where he knows he is going to need help. Number one, God helps in the arena of personal sin. Verse 12, for troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. Of course, what that swampy bog was may have been his own sin too. We don't know. But whether it was that or something else, David is realistic enough to realize that one of the things that causes defeat and pain and suffering is, in fact, his own sin. Sins of greed and covetousness and malice and lust, sins of jealousy, just sins of prayerlessness, failure to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And for some believer who's getting a little closer to God and His holiness, you begin to see your own dirt and darkness a little more clearly. So, so that as a result, as, as you approach God, you, you become more aware of your own sin and you want help. In fact, the picture here is of, of David almost drowning in his sin so that so he can't see. It's as if the sins have come up to his eyeballs and he, he's drowning in them and he can't even look over the top. My sins have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. <clears throat> but God helps in the arena of personal sin. And those of us who stand this side of the cross see that more clearly than ever, do we not? There is one who bore our sins in his own body on the tree. There is one place to return to again and again. We return to the cross and find sins forgiven because Christ bore the punishment on our behalf. His righteousness is ours. Our sin is his. He has bequeathed his Holy Spirit to work within us, to conform us increasingly to his own dear Son. Then, secondly, God helps us in the arena of bitter enemies. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion, verse 14. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. In other words, they do not have the right to take advantage of David's fall. So although his own sin may discourage him, the smug attacks of his enemies arouse within him a sense of injustice. And sometimes that itself speaks something of his resilience. So God helps us in the arena of bitter enemies. Number three, God helps all who seek him, 
All, that is, who seek God's glory, verse 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. Now the vision is broad, not just private sin or personal disaster, not just the oppression of enemies or the like, but whatever the trouble is, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. You see, to compare what I am in my brokenness and inconsistency and physical frailty and impending death, to compare what I am with what God is in his immutability, his perfection, his strength, his perfect knowledge, his utter wisdom, his sovereign sway, that, as a commentator has put it, is a steadying thing. We trust the Lord God. And after all, in this we're merely following the way of the Lord Jesus himself. We read in John chapter 12, verses 27 and 28, that Jesus addresses God in prayer and says, Now my hour has come. That is the hour of his crucifixion. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this hour I came. What shall I say? Father, glorify your name. So also here. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. Or it could equally be rendered, may the Lord be exalted. In Hebrew, it's just two words. Yigdal Yahweh. Yigdal Yahweh. I know some Christians who have gone through deep, deep waters, who wrote on a little card and stuck it on their fridge, Yigdal Yahweh, the Lord is great. May the Lord be exalted so that even in the midst of the tears, still your eyes are called upward, Yigdal Yahweh, the Lord is great. May the Lord be exalted. And finally, in the last place, it all comes down to an individual again, doesn't it? God helps even me, verse 17. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. Let us pray. In truth, Lord God, everyone in this hall, everyone in this sanctuary has either gone through deep swamps in the past or will go through them in the future. And we turn to you now and ask for your grace. We will wait perseveringly for you. Whether you release us or add more grace, Lord God, we do want to trust you. We want to bear testimony in our church assemblies to your ways of wisdom and grace in our lives. And we want to confess Yigdal Yahweh, 
The Lord is great. So from our hearts where we sit, we cry, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. May the Lord be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen.